So at Bible study on this last Wednesday, which Bible studies have been so rich, I would encourage any of you, if you're able to make it, um, to come on out. Because at Bible study last Wednesday, Gracie talked about Jesus welcoming the little children to himself and not shooing them away, as some of his disciples were doing. In Matthew 19, 13, 14, and 15, it says, Then children were brought to him that he may lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So that just got me thinking. That Bible study got me really thinking about the kingdom of God <clears throat> and how in a lot of ways the kingdom of God is kind of upside down to the kingdom of the world. There's so many things that um, Jesus says and that are in the Bible that seem really contrary to the way that the world does things. And today we're going to look at some of those um, things. Um, so I was thinking about how the ways of God sometimes don't make sense according to the standards of this world. But should it make sense? Should we try to fit God's kingdom into the world? Because at least for me, the way of the world can kind of be really stressful and have a lot of pressure. The hustle to be and do what society tells you to be and do is no joke. Like it causes lots of heartache and depression and anxiety. It's hard. And I find it really refreshing that the pressures and the status quo that society puts on you and I is not necessarily what God would have for us. I know we live here and this is the place where, you know, in the physical, this is the physical world. And it's sometimes hard to see past that. But um, what God has for us is far greater. And we can be comforted by that. So I'd like to tell you guys some stories about Jesus from the Bible that show how the kingdom of God doesn't make sense to the ways of this world. Sometimes during a sermon or a Bible study, we read the Bible and we get really deep. We look at each word, word by word and verse by verse, and it's so good to do it that way. I love it. Um, it's wonderfully good to like dig in really deep and get those treasures out. Um, but sometimes I like to read it for the big picture and enjoy it more like a story, to look at how a common theme connects many parts of the Bible. It helps me to know Jesus and what he was like, not just from one story, but from many stories. And I like to picture it with my imagination. I don't know if any of you guys are visual, but when I sometimes when I read stories or listen to stories, I like to like imagine what it would have looked like. And I'm probably wrong you know, what I'm imagining, but it helps me kind of immerse myself into the story, makes it rich for me. So um, so if it talks about the morning, like if the 
part says something about the morning. I picture the dew on the leaves as the sun peaks over the horizon. If it talks about dirty feet, I think about how that would smell and how that would feel kind of gritty. I don't like gritty stuff. <laughs> Makes me feel weird. If Jesus is teaching on a mountainside in the story, I picture him teaching like a little higher up because he wants everybody to hear him. And he doesn't want anybody left out. He wants to be accessible for all. Um, I see the crowds gathering around, listening to what he's saying, probably shading their faces from the heat of the sun. And maybe you can hear kids playing in the background because Jesus didn't leave out the kids. You know, they were there. Even if it doesn't mention it, they were there. So that's how we're going to read the Bible today. And when I read it to you, imagine it. See the character and person of Jesus. And in your mind, think of how Jesus did things differently than what we may, what may have made sense to the people who he's, he was with and how the ways of Jesus are refreshing to us today because God's kingdom is sometimes an upside down kingdom. And sometimes that's very, very good. So a whole sermon could be taught on any of these passages alone. There are treasures in these passages that we're not going to look at today. But I hope by hearing the big picture, you will see the richness of them. And maybe it will cause you to want to dig deeper in your own time and find the treasure that we're not going to talk about today because it's there. Since I'm reading so many Bible passages today, I'm going to try to keep my commentary to a minimum. And um, so what I'll do is suggest a way that God's kingdom is different than the kingdom of this world. And you can listen for that suggestion in the story that I read. Or maybe the Holy Spirit will reveal something else in that passage to you. <clears throat> so the first upside down principle, and by upside down, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. <laughs> Hi, Lucretia. Um, the first principle is the last will be first and the first will be last. See if you can hear that in this story. This is out of Matthew 20 and it's about the parable of the vineyard workers. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At, so they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. 
Those people worked only one hour and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay the last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want to do with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. So if somebody wants to judge you because of maybe when you joined or when you became a Christian, um, you can remember that story and don't take the judgment on yourself because God doesn't treat you any differently. And if you've known God for a really long time and a temptation is to kind of judge the ones that are coming in, like, oh, well, they've only known God for, you know, however long, um, you can remember this story too. And remember God's grace for all of us. So, um, I'm missing a paper. Hold on just a minute. Sorry, guys. Oh, here it is. So this um, principle that looks different to the world, and today this one kind of wrecked me, I got to admit. This is um, the principle that I kind of drew out of this is that Jesus has all authority, so he washes dirty feet. <laughs> so in John 13, um, Starting at verse three, it says, well, let me set up so you guys can picture it and imagine it if that's what you want to do. Um, they had just probably walked a long way, Jesus and his followers, Jesus and his disciples. And, you know, if you picture what it was like in that place, it was really dirty. You know, there was animals that were pooping on the ground. They were walking through it. They wore sandals. You know, I don't know if you guys have even worn sandals on a hot day that's dusty, your feet get dirty. But with all the other stuff, you know, the poop and the whatever and the dirty dishwater and, you know, all the stuff they're walking through, your feet get really, really dirty. And there was usually servants in the house. It was like the most lowly job to wash people's feet. And I picture, it doesn't say this in the story, but I picture these servants being the least acknowledged people in the room. Probably the conversations between the important people are going on and they're not even looking at the servant washing their feet, you know, taking care of their feet that got him there. So he's in a home and um, after a long, dirty walk where we're at. So Jesus knew that the father had given him authority. This part right here, guys. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and that he'd come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. 
Simon Peter explained, he kind of did a little switch here, then wash my hands and my head as well. Lord, just not my, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who's bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you and the disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That's what he meant when he said, not all of you. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I'm doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. So the part that really wrecks me is this verse that says, Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything, right? That's a lot of authority. And that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. So because Jesus knew his authority, he became a servant and did the dirtiest, most degrading task that he could. He lowered himself physically and spiritually. You know, the, the person who owned the house wouldn't even wash feet. They would have somebody, you know, lower, lower. So Jesus, who we follow, he gets low, you know, and he shows us how to do that. So the, and we have authority that God's given us. And with that authority that God's given us, um, we don't have to feel powerful or puffed up. You know, God calls us to get low and to wash people's feet. And um, I think Arlene coming up here is a really good example. I'm glad you came up. <laughs> and we should um, not think of ourselves any better than other people, no matter our social status, no matter where we came from. So in the next story, um, so is that what people in power do when they know their authority in the world? Do people in power get low? Do they become more humble when they recognize the authority that they have? Not typically. Um, is that what we do if or when we have authority? In the next story, Jesus teaches people about those in authority in the religious places. The people he was talking about would have had a lot of power and authority in their time. So this is the principle that I kind of thought was an upside down principle. The greatest among you must be a servant and the people in places of power and influence are not always good examples of who we should follow. So in this story, um, to give a little background, if you want to imagine it, in this story, Jesus is believed to be in the temple talking to the crowds and his disciples, um, but the religious leaders who he was talking about would have been in that place too. It was a really bold move for Jesus to be talking about people in power in earshot of the people in power, you know. Um, and the people he was talking to would have had a really good visual of what he was referring to because it was all around them. He could, they could see what he was talking about because they were in the temple. 
Um, and this is from Matthew 23, starting with verse 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses, which would have been in the Old Testament that we still read. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they preach. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. So he's saying this in earshot of these rabbis. And then he says, goes on to say, don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher. For you have only one teacher, the Messiah, which is Jesus. The greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humble. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the way that the powerful people acted who were in authority during that time, it says they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Can you think of systems that are in our world today that crush people with unbearable demands? I can think of people who maybe are trying to get their license and their fines are so steep after building up and building up that it feels unbearable to ever get their license, but they need to go somewhere. So they drive and guess what? they get another ticket and another ticket and another ticket. That feels crushing. That feels like unbearable demands. I mean, I can think of people who um, have transformed their lives and they have, you know, started maybe turn their lives around, but they have charges that, you know, they go to court for. And I'm not saying that, you know, well, I'm not going to go there, but so, and then the demands that the judge puts on them is unbearable and it makes people feel like everything they did was for nothing, or maybe that what they did and how they changed isn't enough. And that feels really crushing. And there's other scenarios. You guys probably all have scenarios in your mind and in your own life that feels crushing and it feels like unbearable demands, but that's not what Jesus did with his authority. That's not what Jesus did. He, Jesus doesn't crush people with unbearable religious demands. Jesus brings life and Jesus lifts those crushing demands off of you. So um, in Matthew 5, Jesus is teaching on a mountain and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read part of it here. And the thing that I got out of it that seemed contrary to the way the world is, and maybe the way my life is, and maybe yours too, is blessed are all these people who are probably not feeling very blessed. 
So one day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And this one's real tough. God blesses you, all of you, when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are followers of Jesus. It says, because you are my followers. Be happy about it. <laughs> Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So do you guys see how the things that Jesus said and did may not have made sense to the world? I know I read a lot in those scriptures, and hopefully I didn't bore you guys, but I wanted the whole picture of what Jesus was doing and the whole story of how um, the way he did things is not the way of the world. And it's still like that today. The spirit of God is still doing things in and through us and in this world that doesn't look like the way the world does stuff. And that's okay. And if you find yourself in a place that doesn't look like a place of power or doesn't feel like a place that um, is like the honored place, like the honored seat at the table, if you know what I mean, um, that's okay. Because Jesus washed the poopy feet. Okay. And that's who we're following. So we don't have to sit at the head of the table. We don't have to be, you know, up in lights or on TV or whatever it looks like to you to um, have authority or, you know, be powerful because we follow Jesus and Jesus gave us the best example. We have freedom to be like Jesus, not like the world. It's a better way for us and for those around us. In Romans 12, 2, it says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Even if it doesn't look like the things of the world, maybe especially if, um, <laughs> If, it, if it's God's will for you, it's good and pleasing and perfect. That's what the Bible says. And I want to encourage you guys with that. So God, I thank you that um, we don't have to conform to the ways of this world, but we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that we could know the, the um, perfect and good call that you have for each one of us. Every single person here, every person on Zoom. I thank you that... Uh, we can break out of the boxes that have been created, even by churches, to do things a certain way or um, 
look a certain way or wear certain clothes, God, I thank you that you're not even worried about that. I ask that you would teach us how to um, walk in a way that's more like you, that the upside down kingdom of God that we have here on earth would refresh us in our heart of hearts, that we would feel like we have freedom to go and look different and be different and love people in a way that's different that will transform people's lives. Pray that you would bless each person here. And um, as they dig into these scriptures themselves, that you would reveal the hidden treasure within that we kind of passed over today. And I thank you in Jesus' name. So, amen. This past week, I've been reflecting. I'm gonna leave you guys with this. That was my first closing, but I'll have another closing <laughs> too. Um, this week I've been reflecting on the past year at Tierra Nueva because we write like a year-end newsletter. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about, about this, about the upside down kingdom. And um, then with Gracie's message on Wednesday at Bible study, that was so good. It uh, was just kind of really burning in my heart. And I want to share with you what I wrote about Tierra Nueva. And I share about Tierra Nueva because that's what I know. I'm not exalting Tierra Nueva over other ministries. There's amazing ministries doing amazing things for God. And um, this is in no way a judgment against any of those. And I talk about Tierra Nueva and I'm writing about Tierra Nueva because I'm at Tierra Nueva. <laughs> Just wanna clarify that. Um, so I wanna read this to you in closing. And then we'll do communion. So um, in our fall newsletter, I wrote, how do we measure success? So does the world's version of success, um, is that how we need to measure our ministry here at Tierra Nueva? I hope not. <laughs> what does success look like for a ministry like Tierra Nueva? How can we measure what a successful year of ministry is? Sure, we could count how many people came to the Family Support Center, saw Julio, and they get help for the basics for living, such as hygiene products, clothing, gas cards, and diapers. We keep records for that stuff, so we could count that. Or we could count how many people come to our Sunday gatherings, which are sometimes so full that they're standing room only. And other times there are empty chairs in between the dear ones who've come to join us. We could count how many asked for prayer or how many joined in communion or how many dollars or cents were given in the offering plate. We could count those things. But counting those things only gives us numbers. Numbers don't feel like a good way to measure Tiranueva's success. Even using a word like success falls short and feels hollow when I think of this last year at Tierra Nueva. There's much more than a measure of success, especially in the context of how the world interprets success in that upside down kingdom of God. We don't have a fancy building, but it's welcoming for all to come, encounter God and feel the love of a community. We don't have a big band for worship. Many Sundays we use recorded songs on a video but the spirit of God is with us, filling our hearts as we worship our maker. 
Here at Chernoeva, we choose to spend our funds on things that aren't outwardly visible. We put priority on meeting the needs of people and reaching out to the community, seeking those on the margins who are often overlooked and forgotten. We're humbled and blessed as the unseen transformation in people's hearts become visible and their countenances lifted as they experience the love of God and being welcomed and accepted. Rather than focus on what we can quantify in the natural, I would rather focus on things that cannot be measured. We can't measure how it feels for brothers and sisters who are incarcerated as they lay on the cold bunk in their cell and ponder what Bob or Gracie said to them during a visit. Can we count the peace they've found by learning that they can pray to God? And how do we measure the glimmer of hope that's growing inside of them because they just heard the good news of Jesus? How do we measure the life of a single mother who used to be caught up in a lifestyle of drugs and crime, but now through the loving and committed Tierra Nueva community has met Jesus? She's surrendered her life and been transformed by the relationship with her savior. And now she's becoming whole and healthy, both for herself and her children. Countless hours of advocacy and prayer have been poured into her and her situation. If we were to count the time spent, it would be worth every single second. Can we count the tears that rolled down the cheeks of a man experiencing homelessness? We encountered him on a cold, dark Friday evening during our weekly street outreach. He wept as he told us it had been so long since someone had looked at him, had a normal conversation with him, and treated him like a fellow human being. The tears fell even faster as he gladly accepted a prayer, a hot meal, and a hug. I suppose we could count how many blankets or gloves are handed out to people who live outside in the cold, but it's not so easy to measure the warmth in a person's heart as they open up to us because we've given them those gloves or blankets to keep them warm. Only when they see that we truly care through our actions, they are sometimes able to trust us enough to share their struggles and accept prayer. I'm gonna try not to cry through this one. How can we measure the comfort in a dear woman's heart as she's surrounded by the love of God and, oh, and community on the one year anniversary of her beloved husband's death? Can we count the love our faith community has for her and her love for us? Should we tally up the people who are from very different backgrounds and walks of life, but are now considered her family? Is there a scale to find the weight that's been lifted from her to know that she's not alone? Counting the mourners who came to memorials held this past year to grieve the loss of their loved ones gone too soon would be futile. They filled this sanctuary and spilled out onto the sidewalks. The individual people melted into one tear-soaked mob draped on each other in embraces that were as much to keep from falling over as they were for comfort. To measure the sorrow would be as impossible as measuring the relief that the families felt because Tierra Nueva is a space without judgment or shame to remember their dearly departed, no matter what took their lives. Do we count the prayers we pray together every Sunday, lifting each other up to God and carrying the feet of Jesus those things that are too heavy for one person to bear? 
Or do we count the answers to those prayers? A mother reunited with her children, a woman who has her own housing for the first time in forever, a healed back, a tumor shrinking, a car for someone, a job that provides, a year or a month, or even the first day of someone staying clean and sober. These are just a few of the countless prayers that have been answered this past year in our faith community, some miraculously and some through the kindness and generosity of others. I don't think that we could adequately begin to count those blessings. When I think of the success of Tierra Nueva over the past year, I don't think I want to measure it, at least not in numbers and figures. I'm content with experiencing what God is doing here and surrendering to whatever God wants to do now and in the coming year, whether it looks like the world's definition of success or not. I'm excited to see what this next year holds for Tierra Nueva. May we have more opportunities to share Jesus with people, and may we be blown away by what God is doing and by the transformation that takes place in the hearts and lives as we walk alongside Jesus and people. In Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, it says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. The immeasurable ability of God is what we are experiencing and what is yet to come. It doesn't always look like success in the world's eyes, and that's okay. Because success in Jesus's eyes looks like washing dirty feet. It's not always, you know, glorious and spectacular, but it's always good. And that's enough for us. And that's enough for me. And I wanted to share that with you because all of you guys are a part of that. And the success that we've had this past year may not look like success in the world standards and that's okay. Actually, I think it's more than okay because the ways of God are not the ways of the world. And we don't wanna pattern you know, our lives after that. And I want to share it with you because you guys are all a huge part of that. You guys are that. Those things I talked about, they're because of you. They're because of God working in you and through you. And um, I'm just really blessed to be a part of this community and to be family with you guys. And I'm really excited for what God's doing next.